This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much, Michael, for that nice introduction. Um, and I'm very happy to be at least virtually present for this talk. Um, I hope that the topic of, is of interest to this group. Um, and I selected it with some, some thought about, in fact, what um, themes that, that, um, that, I, that I hope that you've had some interest in discussing. Um, so the topic of tonight's talk is intentionality in Aquinas. And just to make sure everyone is on the same page. Oh, thank you, Michael. Yes, so there's, there's a handout. So the handout um, will contain talks, uh, I'm sorry, texts that we'll be talking about, but also um, some structure for the talk, just to make it a little easier to follow along. Um, so we're going to be talking about intentionality. And broadly speaking, we can define intentionality or gesture at intentionality as a feature that our conscious life has, um, namely that it is about or of something. It has content or objects, it represents something. So my pen is not about anything, it just is what it is. But we standardly think that words or thoughts or appetites perhaps are about something. They refer to a point to something. And the goal of this talk is to fundamentally reconceptualize Aquinas' theory of intentionality, which is something that I'm working on for one of the books that Michael mentioned. So um, I've got the, the book project sort of falls into two parts. And the first part has to do with reconceptualizing Aquinas' theory of knowing as a metaphysics of knowing. And that's to say that the story of our conscious life in Aquinas is a story about how a certain kind of being comes to be constituted in us. Um, I especially am focusing on intellectual being because that's the kind of being that Aquinas talks about the most. Um, and that kind of being is constituted in us according to the same rules that govern changes and acquisitions in any kind of being across Aquinas' metaphysics. Um, so that's why I think of it as a metaphysics of knowing rather than a psychology of knowing. Um, the advantage of, and I'll say a little bit more later in the talk about how this works. The advantage of this kind of model, I hope, is that it provides a single conceptual framework for talking about mind and the non-mental. So we don't need one self-contained psychological theory and then a separate self-contained ontological theory. Um, but uh, anything that we want to say about the mental reduces to more fundamental claims about metaphysics generally. Um, but in the talk tonight, I want to look at a challenge that this view faces, which is the topic of the second part of this sort of two part book project, which actually comes from what I take to be an advantage of the view. And that's how to account for the intentionality of knowing within a purely metaphysical approach to knowing. The reason is that intentionality or aboutness does not seem to be a broadly applicable notion. We typically restrict it to the realm of the mental, or at least to the realm of the mental and things derived from the mental like words and signs. But we don't typically say that one chunk of granite is about another chunk of granite. And I'm reminded here of a, of a TV advertisement that I saw when I was living in, German, uh, in Germany, advertising English lessons. And there was, um, so the, the scene is of a Coast Guard in the dark, 
listening to a radio and then he gets an SOS distress signal over the radio and the, and the people on the, the boat in distress say, we are, we're sinking, we're sinking, we're sinking. And he thinks about it and he gets a kind of beatific expression on his face and he picks up the intercom and he said, what are you thinking about? And then it tells you, you can learn English properly by, by taking our course, this sort of thing. But the play, of course, is on the fact that the question, what is it about, makes sense for if, if it we're talking about thinking, but it's not a kind of question that makes sense when we're talking about a, a boat in distress. Um, so that makes it sound, it makes it seem as though it's going to be very hard to talk about intentionality in purely metaphysical terms. But that's what I'm going to try to do. So my procedure tonight is going to be as follows. First, I'm going to try to get out of the way of view that has come to be frequently taken as the standard medieval view of intentionality, um, largely in connection with a famous remark by Brentano, but Brentano is influenced by neo-scholasticism, broadly speaking, and so this is, it's not all due to Brentano, it's, it's due to the tradition he's tapping into, that we think of intentionality associated, this particular view of intentionality with the scholastic period, and especially with Aquinas. Um, and then I want to specify more precisely exactly what we might be asking Aquinas about when we look through his text for a theory of intentionality. And I want to make a distinction between two different features of the phenomenon that we're trying to gesture at that are frequently blurred together that I think it's actually helpful to distinguish if we're asking Aquinas about what he thinks. Um, and so those two features are what I call presence and directionality. And so and then I'm going to, the, the talk will run through both of those and try to explain in metaphysical terms what accounts for the presence aspect of what we call intentionality and what accounts for the directional aspect of what we um, what we think of as intentionality now. And then at the end, I'm going to say what that means for his account of or how we can reduce aboutness to broader metaphysical structures um, in his theory. Okay, so starting with um, this standard view of intentionality uh, in section one. So we can start with a quote from Brentano from the psychology from an empirical standpoint. It very famously says that every mental phenomenon is characterized by what the scholastics of the Middle Ages called the intentional or mental inexistence of an object. And what we might call, though not wholly unambiguously, reference to a content, direction toward an object which is here not to be understood as meaning a thing, or imminent objectivity. Every mental phenomenon includes something as object within itself, though they do not do so in the same way. Um, and he gives in different ways. He says, this intentional inexistence is characteristic exclusively of mental phenomena. No physical phenomenon exhibits anything like it. We can therefore define mental phenomena by saying that they are those phenomena which contain an object intentionally within themselves. So when readers of Brentano look for those scholastics of the Middle Ages, of course, one of the people that they look to is Aquinas. And they look in particular to what's often called the mind world identity theory in Aquinas. So Aquinas famously, uh, drawing on Aristotle and, and other figures in the Aristotelian tradition, adopts a formulation that goes something like this. He says that the intellect in actuality is the intelligible in actuality. Or sometimes he says 
the intellect becomes the intelligible in knowing. Or he'll say that to know is to be the intelligible. So different formulations that seem to identify intellect and the intelligible in the moment of knowing. Now here's how this kind of formulation is standardly unpacked to give us an account of intentionality as identification, a kind of sui generis identification in Aquinas. So the, the account goes something like this. You have the intellect over here. You have a real tree over here. Um, there are other, the intellect is not the real tree. The real tree is not the intellect. How did they're even separated by a spatial distance? So how does the intellect get over to the tree in order to know it? Or how does the tree get over to the intellect? And then the picture is, well, the form of the tree is abstracted from the tree and received into the intellect. But then, of course, this is kind of a problem because then we still want to know what's the relationship between the tree form in the tree and the tree form in the, in, in the intellect. And Aquinas talks about the tree form in the intellect, the technical term that he uses there, um, as many of you know, is intelligible species. So let's say the intelligible species of the tree. Um, now, the relationship between those two forms, the form in the tree and the form in the intellect, is very fraught because depending on how we portray it, it's going to look as though the intellect is being pushed away from or brought closer to the tree. So in the worst case scenario, we would imagine the tree, the tree species as being something that's in the way of the intellect's vision. The intellect is looking at the tree species and that's blocking it from seeing the real tree. But at least that's the way, that's the only way it has of accessing the tree is by bringing it indoors and looking at it. Um, that's a kind of representationalist reading of Aquinas, but that's not the standard reading. The standard reading wants to say that the tree form in the intellect and the tree form in the thing are in some way one and the same form. You see, some formulations going so far as to almost make it sound as what, we're, what we have going on is numerically one and the same form. Um, nobody quite argues for exactly that view, and the reason is that there's a special claim being made about the status of the tree species that allows for a strong claim about the unity of the form in the intellect and the unity of the form in the thing. And the idea is something like this. In this view, well, I'll say in a minute where this view comes from, but if you're reading the handout, you've already looked ahead and you already saw where it came from. Uh, but the view is something like this. The tree species has some kind of special feature. It's an intentional item. It's not a form of real being. It's a form of merely intentional being. And what that means is that it's a pure vehicle. And so by receiving it, the intellect is not being changed in any way. It's just being immediately put into the presence of the tree. So it's all like a kind of hyperlink or a hyperportal to the tree. It's a way of the intellect getting outside itself to be one with the tree, or a way of the tree getting outside itself to be one with the intellect. You can think about it either, in either direction. That's quite a common way of thinking about the intelligible species in Aquinas. A, it mediates a special kind of identification without changing either of the things that are being identified. Is this actually Aquinas' view? Now, I argue in reality, it is not. It is the view of John of St. Thomas, a 17th century commentator on Aquinas. He says, and this is a quote on your handout, um, the object, meaning the nature and the tree, is intelligibly contained in the species, 
in such a way that not merely something similar, but identically the same object, which exists in itself, is transformed into the intellect in a different being, namely intelligible being, in such a way that the knower is the very object itself. And John of St. Thomas is not making this view up by himself. He gets it from the Scotistic Thomistic discussions where Thomistic interpreters actually get the view, they take the view on board from Scotus and Scot John Dunn's Scotus, John Dunn's Scotus himself gets the view from a very important late 13th century thinker called Henry of Ghent, who as far as I can tell is the first person to bring in that kind of um, view. And this sort of notion also shows up now in the Thomistic literature in the common emphasis on cognition in Aquinas as being a way of, for the mind to do its special thing, which is to include the other as other. That's what minds can do, but nothing else can do. So a pen cannot take on what is other than itself as other. It could take on fire in such a way as to destroy what it is but it can't take on what is other as other, namely while remaining itself. And so the idea in this theory is that the mind has the special ability to take on what is other than itself and remain what it is, right? Because of this special way in which this, this kind of being is not real being, but it's merely intentional as a way of being, putting you directly into the presence of the thing. Okay, so this is not Aquinas's view, I want to argue. Um, my theory of Aquinas is that he adopts what I want to call a metaphysical model of mind, where the whole concept of intentional being is a special mode of being, of essential sign character, these kinds of sui generis psychological characteristics that are attributed to the species are not, in fact, part of this theory. Instead, the whole theory of the intelligible species and the intellect uh, which he describes as a kind of matter. All of that is a story about how a certain kind of conscious being comes to exist in us. And it's an account that's framed in the same way that his general hypermorphic theory is framed. You have a subject that has a potential for which there is some corresponding actuality. So in the case of Water, you can imagine the subject of water. Water has the potency to be 100, 100 degrees. It acquires the heat of being 100 degrees. It does that by receiving a new form, right? And now it has a new actuality, actualizing that potentiality. It is 100 degrees hot. Um, and as a result of acquiring that new actuality, it's able to perform a new action. So now that it is actually hot, it is able to perform an action of heating. So now it's cooking your pasta. So similarly, this is the account that I want to push on um, as the interpretation, the correct interpretation of Aquinas on mind. So he holds that, for instance, if we look at sight, we have a, we have a subject, which is the, the organ of the, the ensouled organ of the eye. It has a potential for visual being. Um, when, that, when the eye receives the sensible form of color, it acquires visual being in actuality and is thereby given the status, the ontological status to perform an act of seeing. Similarly, and more importantly for us, because we're just going to be talking about intellect tonight, uh, we want to say the same thing about the intellect. Here for Aquinas, the subject is the human soul, not a body part, but just directly the soul itself. The soul has a potential 
for a special kind of being, namely intellectual being. And the name for that potential is what he calls intellect. So intellect is really just the name for a potential, um, with this technical term being possible intellect more specifically. Uh, when the possible when the soul receives a new form, namely the intelligible species, so in this case, supposing that I'm having the thought catness, right, I receive the intelligible species catness, and that gives me a new kind of being that I didn't have before, a new actuality, which is intellectual actuality. Um, and once I have that actuality, I'm now able to perform an act of knowing. Now, these kinds of new being that I'm talking about, the, the visual being in the eye, the intellectual being in the soul, this is basically for Aquinas the stuff of consciousness. What it is, objectively, is a subjective experience. To acquire it is to acquire an instance of cog conscious experience. And so the picture, broadly speaking, is that visual being is a kind of, is the stuff of visual experience. Intellectual being is the stuff of intellectual experience. Okay, so what should we make of this claim that intellect and the intelligible are one in knowing in Aquinas on this metaphysical account? Here, I think we, we, we're sort of, when we take the metaphysical approach, a new possibility opens up, namely that we can take Aquinas at his word. When he says they are one and the same thing, he means there is just one kind of being, and that kind of being is both intellect and intelligible. That's the kind of being that it is. So he's actually defining for us what it means to be the, the being of, of intellectual experience. It is to be a being that is thinker and a being that is thought. But that's just one nature. It's like a dual description of any single kind of being like hoarseness or heat. But here, the being is thought. And the characteristic is it is both intellectual and intelligible. Um, so the quickest way for me to get you to see that I'm serious about this is to say that for Aquinas, all immaterial forms are intelligible. And all intelligible forms are thinkers. So all immaterial forms are thinkers. And I have a number of texts in which Aquinas actually says that explicitly that I can point to if you don't believe me. Um, so thinking and being thought are features of the same being for Aquinas. And I think I could say more later about um, in the Q&A if people want to talk about this more, but I think the way to catch this out is that he's describing a distinctive kind of consciousness that is self-manifest. So it's the being of self-manifestation is this being of intellect. Um, and when I'm thinking, I've acquired it. That's what thinking consists in. Okay, so what that means is we have a kind of paradigm shift that I'm proposing here uh, um, in terms of answering the question, what makes knowing possible? Um, and what I'm proposing is that the answer is not a mind acquires a new psychological tool that makes the world appear. That's not the answer. Rather, the answer is acquiring a new kind of being that is self-manifesting, which is the being of thought and thinker, the being of intellect and intelligible. So whenever I'm thinking, I have an instance of this kind of being, which is what my thought consists in, and which is the actuality of my thinking intellect. Okay, now that's all very, that's not 
essentially what this talk is about. This is just stage setting. And so hopefully we can see right there that there's a huge problem. Because if we have a view like this, a purely metaphysical view, where the whole interest of the view is, what are the features of this kind of being? What kind of causes can bring it about? What kind of subjects can have it? What can you do once you acquire it? All these kinds of metaphysical questions. Now we might ask, well, what happened to the world? What happened to this sort of subject, object, mind, world nexus that we tend to think about our conscious life in terms of? Um, and one way of putting that question is, well, can we still talk about intentionality in the framework of this kind of intellectual being? And that's what the main portion of the talk, talk, talk is going to consider. And my answer is going to be yes, but only by reducing intentionality to metaphysical structures that are common to all beings. Okay, so section two, what is intentionality? So I think the first step when we're, when we're doing the history of philosophy, you know, we have to recognize that many times the questions that we're bringing to the text are not exactly the questions that the authors have exactly. Um, and so we have to undergo a bit of negotiating with the text in order to figure out how our questions line up with the author's questions. And so I want to do that first um, and just think a little bit about how to get a good fit between the kind of questions we want to ask him about intentionality and the kinds of themes that he addresses. Um, so let me propose, because that could take a very long time, so let me just propose by fiat two basic features of pre-philosophical experience that I think Aquinas addresses. Um, so it's common now to speak of intentionality in the abstract and to ask about medieval theories of intentionality as, it's a, as though it's a single simple feature of our mental states. But I think one way to get to, to get some traction on how a medieval thinker is, what kinds of questions they're asking and how they map onto questions we're asking is to try to find the phenomena that, I mean, that the medieval thinkers are trying to address and figure out where they line up with the questions that we're asking. And so I want to distinguish two interrelated aspects of our conscious experience that I'm calling intentional presence and intentional direction. And Aquinas, I think, has something distinct to say about each of them. So we need two related answers in order to address each of these things. So on the one hand, there's the fact that conscious experience feels like the presence of what is other. So something is there for me when I open my eyes, and it's something other than me. That's what I'm calling intentional presence. Um, so whereas cats are just cats, and my pen is just a pen, my knowing is not just bare knowing, it is knowing catness or knowing willowness. And I am neither a cat nor a willow. And yet when I begin to know, none of that changes. I remain what I am and I don't become a cat or a willow. And yet these things that come across to me as other than myself are there, so to speak, in my knowing. That's one feature of the, of the phenomenon. On the other hand, there's the directionality of conscious experience or intentional direction. I look out the window at the row of trees or away from them. I make an effort to concentrate on or think about a mathematical theorem, trying to turn my attention, attention away from thoughts about dinner. In other words, perceiving and knowing feel like emotion towards something, terminating in something. Um, 
so in other words, we could, we could unpack here even more precisely if we wanted to, that perceiving and knowing feel like, first of all, an active, active doing as opposed to merely something that happens to us. And more specifically, like an acting towards something and also something whose direction and intensity we can potentially control. And these are aspects of an Augustini, that uh, Augustinian theory of knowing that are particularly brought out in the Augustinian tradition in the medieval period, but I, I think they're also found in Aquinas, in fact. So in what follows, I'm going to try to show that Aquinas sets up his account of human knowing to accommodate both phenomena, the intentional presence and the intentional directionality, and that in both cases, he appeals to structures that recur through the natural world. So let's start with intentional presence. And we'll take, and I'm sorry, this is a problem because I've just gotten a replacement computer from the OIT and they've given me a mouse that doesn't work. So the scrolling is a bit awkward. Um, so let's start with Sarah, a double math, um, math and biology major who studies the natures of cats, triangles, and trees. So in what sense does the otherness of cats, triangles, and trees enter into her knowing? Now, what I want to suggest is that Aquinas' answer does not appeal to something extrinsic to Sarah, such as being related in a special way to a cat or a triangle or a tree. Rather, there's something internal to her knowing that determines it to be cat knowing, triangle knowing, or tree knowing, namely the intelligible species or intelligible form. On a view I've defended elsewhere, Aquinas has what could be called a hylomorphic account of knowing. Intellectuality is in Sarah only as a potential. But when Sarah acquires an intellectual form, the species of catness, intellectual being is actualized in her. A cat form gives her cat intellectuality so that she becomes cattishly actualized and therefore engages in an act of cat knowing. You didn't know all these things were happening to you when you were thinking. Now, one might object that the intelligible species cannot really be a cat form or a triangle form, because if it were, it would make Sarah be a cat or a triangle. Surely, this is how most of the literature goes, surely Aquinas must have meant merely that the intelligible species is of a cat or of a triangle that it has some sort of relationship to cats or triangles. For instance, perhaps all it means for this to be a cat species is that it is caused by a cat. But that's not Aquinas' view. He will admit that the, the form in this meowing feline and the form of Sarah's actualized intellect do not have the same mode of being. He's happy to say that. The cat's mode of being is material, extended, and self-opaque. The actualized intellect's mode of being is immaterial, simple and self-illuminated. Nonetheless, he insists that both forms have what, he have what he calls the same ratio. So he explains that the form house is in an architect's mind and in the houses she builds, quote, according to the same ratio, though not according to the same mode of being. For in the houses, the form is in material being, but in the mind of the architect, it has immaterial being. Um, as I've suggested elsewhere, the term ratio is notoriously difficult, but in this context, the best translation is arguably determinacy. So in Aquinas' metaphysics, a specific kind of essence can be analyzed in terms of a set of determinations or constraints on being. Cat 
is a determination of animal, which is itself a determination of living thing, which is a determination of body, which is a determination of being. In my view, when Aquinas says that the ratio of a house has mental being in the architect, he is describing the constraint on mental being to a particular kind. The mental form is house form. The intellectual being is house being rather than cat being, let's say. Um, and so the way we should think about this is that for Aquinas, we start with a kind of, not start temporally, but start ontologically with a kind of being in a genus, might be bodily being, it might be intellectual being, and then the determination narrows it down to be of a, of a certain kind. And it turns out that being of a kind can apply to intellectual being just as much as to bodily being. So you can have a cattish kind of intellectual being and also a cattish kind of bodily being. And a cattish kind of bodily being is a cat and a cattish kind of intellectual being is a cat thought or cat intellect. That's the picture. Um, so when Sarah is intelligibly actualized in thinking about cats, the form that gives her intelligible being is determinately cat form. And what makes it be so is something internal to the form. It's ratio and not some kind of relation. So it's not as though the intelligible form is determinately cat only in the derivative sense of being related to cats or caused by cats or about cats. Rather, Aquinas insists that the ratio that makes Sarah's intelligible form be a cat form is the same ratio that makes this kitty's soul be a cat soul. When Sarah is thinking about cats, a genuine instance of cat being comes in her as a new characteristic of her. It is not living meowing cat being, but rather intellectual, intelligible, immaterial cat being, thought cat. Um, and so the, the, the metaphysics behind this is one in which there's two different ways of being cat. There's an intellectual way and there's a material way. And this is exactly the view, in fact, that Aquinas gets from Avicenna. So, and Avicenna seems to, in some way, be drawing on some uh, roots of the, the same idea in Alexander of Aphrodisias. So it's a, it's a view that has a long tradition by the time it gets to Aquinas, in fact. Um, but it's a claim about the possibilities of the determination cat and how it can exist, not a claim about sui generis features of mental being. Um, okay, so that's not to say that there's no relation between thought cat and living cat. Um, when, when Aquinas, uh, when two forms belong to the same kind or even just have the same ratio, Aquinas argues that they necessarily bear relations of likeness to each other. So he's perfectly happy to say that the one form is a likeness of the other form. But the relation, and this is what I want to emphasize, is not doing any work in accounting for mental presence in Aquinas' psychology. What makes Sarah's thought determinately cat thought is something internal to her thought, the nature of the form itself. And she would be having a cat thought, regardless of whether there are any cats out there to be related to. Um, so if so now we might ask, okay, if the determinacy to cat is a feature internal to the intellectual being of Sarah in the moment of thinking, why is it that there's a feeling of otherness that comes into the experience? 
So why is it that Katniss is something that is illuminated to Sarah, right? Um, as the, this instance of intellectual experience that is modifying Sarah, why the feel of otherness? Why does Katniss show up to Sarah as being other than herself? And I think the reason for Aquinas is that um, this determination comes to Sarah not from her own nature, but as a feature of an accidental form. The form is not from her. The form is from something else. Um, and the determination of that form is not innate to Sarah. It's not part of who she is. Now, the feel of otherness indicates the alien origin of the being she has acquired. It is an accidental. This is, this is I think, what Aquinas handles by saying that um, intellectual being is accidental to the human being. It's acquired. Um, and we can, we can get a handle on this by comparing very briefly to forms that are the very substance of the knower, where the mental presence does not include a sense of otherness. So we could compare to Aquinas' theory of angels, for instance, where an angel is just nothing but an intelligible form. Um, and there Aquinas says the angel is manifest to itself through its very essence. You can think of the angel as being just an instance of intellectual experience, but there wouldn't be any otherness built into that intellectual experience because the angel just is itself. So the determination of the form, let's say we're talking about angel Michael, right? That the form has its own internal determination. It's determined to Michaelity, let's say, right? Um, and so the determination on the thought, it is a Michaelish thought that is the instance of intellectual experience, which is an angel. But there would be no otherness baked in there because um, nothing, the, the angel has not become that by some kind of accidental change. So we can use that kind of as a foil for understanding what's happening in the human case. Okay, and also for understanding that to be intellectually present, to be illuminated, to be a determiner on an instance of experience does not require otherness in Aquinas' account, even though 99.9% .9 of our experiences are like that because they come to us from something, from by the causal action of something else. Okay, so let's summarize then, what is Aquinas' account of intentional presence? namely his account of the fact that Sarah's intellectual being seems to bear or include or express something other than Sarah herself? The answer is that Sarah's intellectual being is, is formed by a form that has a certain determinate character or ratio, which does not come from her nature, a cat character, cat determinacy, or a triangle determinacy, or a tree determinacy. Okay. Um, there are some things that we could say to differentiate this kind of view from the standard intentionality by identity view above, but um, I want to make sure we get through the directionality material so we could come back to that later if people want to know what the differences are. Okay, so the third section then on intentional directionality. Now, what we've been talking about with intentional presence is a static feature of our knowing. Cat nature is there for Sarah as the being of her intellect when she is learning about cats. But Aquinas also describes what appears to be a dynamic feature of our knowing. He insists that we do not merely passively acquire intellectual form. Once perfected by the intelligible form, 
we also do something. We perform an action of knowing or intelligere in the Latin is what I'm talking about. Um, so I don't mean knowing in the sense of the epistemology justified true belief sense of knowing. Um, this is an act of intellectual contemplation for Aquinas. So knowing, Aquinas says, is a certain effect that falls upon the unification of knower and known, which is to say the actualization of knower and known. So it turns out that we're not just talking about intellectual being here, but once we have intellectual being, there's also an intellectual doing. Now here, I think it's important to emphasize that Aquinas is diverging from the common Aristotelian quote, quote, traditional view. So compare the following formulations. In Aristotle's De Anima, we find the formulation, he, which he puts as a hypothetical, if to know is to be affected, pasking, um, in the medieval Latin translation, they don't have it as a hypothetical, so they just quote it as a statement of what is true. To know is to be affected. In Alexander of Aphrodisius, the great third century commentator on Aristotle, um, in his De Anima, he writes that intelligizing, knowing, consists in having, echein, the intelligized form. And then in Averroes, who is the second person in the Aristotelian commentary tradition, be called the commentator. He writes, to know is a passion, passio, or to know is the very known thing itself. So Aquinas is actually committing a fairly significant departure from his Aristotelian sources by insisting that knowing is not just a being that we passively acquire, but also something that we do. And I would suggest that what he's trying to, what he's trying to accomplish by adding this extra piece into his theory, which is not in his Aristotelian sources, is trying to account for the phenomenon of intentional directing. Um, and that he's familiar with this phenomenon from many uh, passages of Augustine, where Augustine talks about the active dimension of knowing as the soul's um, the will, the, the intensio of the will, uh, adhering the, some power of the mind to its object. It talks about it as something that's going forth from the soul to its object as a kind of motion-like, um, something motion-like which terminates in, in an object. And there's a strong Augustinian tradition in the 13th century that picks this up and wants to make the case that all cognition is active and not passive. And often Aquinas is put on the passive side of this, of, of this debate. In fact, that's not correct. And again, I can, I can show the text where Aquinas makes clear. Um, there's, a pa there's a passive receptivity, which consists in the acquisition of form in the first place. But with form being acquired, the in intellect instantly goes forth into an act of, of knowing, which is a kind of doing. Um, so it's got, there's a receptivity and then also an acting. So in ascribing directionality to our knowing, Aquinas borrows language from transitive action in which an agent acts on a patient. So for instance, he speaks of the intellect as carrying toward or turning toward extramental natures. Or he says that intellect had an intention, intensio, that can be carried toward a terminus with greater or lesser intensity in the manner of a motion or operation. And he says that the terminus in question is first and foremost something extramental the nature or quiddity existing in extramental things. Aquinas famously says that these extramental natures are what we know, or at least what we first know, since we can certainly turn our attention inward to think of intramental realities as well when we're doing philosophy of mind. 
And interestingly, there's another more subtle way in which knowing is spoken of as motion-like, namely in the fact that verbs of knowing take a direct object. We don't just know, we know something. There is a what we know. So it's easy to take this for granted. But on the surface, it appears that the reason that there is a what for motions of what is cut, what is burnt, is that something in the world is being changed. But what is known is not being changed by knowing. So we have to ask Aquinas, why does knowing, like motion, have a what? Despite the fact that what is moved and what is known do not bear the same relationship to the moving and the knowing. The phenomenon to which Aquinas refers when he speaks of the intellect as carried toward a terminus, I would argue, is that of intentional direction. It's an attending or a motion towards something, intellectual motion towards something. Indeed, the motion imagery is so strong in Aquinas' writings that Aquinas must frequently remind the reader that knowing is not, strictly speaking, a motion. Motion in Aquinas' physical theory is from an agent unfolding in a patient. When fire heats iron, heating is something that is happening in the iron, from the fire. In contrast, knowing is an imminent operation. This is the language he uses of imminent operation a perfection that remains in the agent as a perfection of the agent. It's the agent's perfection of itself. There's no patient being changed by knowing. Rather, my performance of knowing completes me, the knower. So there seems to be a profound disanalogy between motion and knowing, which Aquinas is continually stressing. And yet, everywhere we turn in his writings, he seems to continually be describing knowing in motion-like terms. So let me briefly point to a couple things about Aquinas' theory of motion and how directionality surfaces there to help us understand what it might mean for an intellectual operation to be motion-like, even if not a motion, and therefore have directionality in a certain sort. Now, directionality appears in two places in Aquinas' Aquinas general theory of motion. First, in the direction of efficient causation, in which an agent acts on a patient. There's no, there's no ambiguity in, uh, in the direction of emotions from an agent to a patient. Secondly, it appears in the motion's teleological direction toward its terminus. So the, um, well, I'll explain each of these. So the first kind of directionality follows the causal arrow in efficient causation. For verbs signifying transitive actions like burn or carve, a grammatical direct object tracks the agent to patient causal arrow. So when fire burns, what is burned is the patient in which the burning occurs. The second kind of directionality occurs within the motion itself. So recall that for Aquinas, emotion is an unfolding of actuality in the patient from the agent. So heating is in the pot of water from a gas burner, and heating is a gradual increase in temperature that's happening in the water. Now, this gradual increase is an unfolding of actuality or an actualization that occurs in a fixed direction towards some end state or terminus at which the motion aims. Here, the completeness of heat. So the directionality within motion is teleological. The motion unfolds towards some end and is complete when the end is reached. The end state, of course, does not exist yet at the beginning of the motion, but is brought into existence by the motion in the patient. Okay, 
So directionality in transitive action then is found in two ways in Aquinas. One, in the direction of the agent's influence on the patient, or two, in the teleological directedness of the motion itself toward its endpoint. And what I want to suggest is that it's the second kind of directionality in motion, the teleological orientation toward an endpoint, which is the one that serves as the model for Aquinas for the intentional directionality of knowing. Okay, however, there's a disanalogy, which consists in this. The teleological direction within a motion is towards some end state construed as the product of the motion or what the motion brings about. And it's tempting to think that Aquinas similarly thinks that the intellectual operation is teleologically directed towards some product, some intramental product of form. And there's a long tradition of this in interpreting Aquinas in this discussion of the bear boom that shows up in John and St. Thomas. We can talk about all that. I think this is not the right way to read Aquinas, in fact, and I'm happy to say more about that later. Um, so I just want to say sort of by fiat again that the teleology is not a one of one of intramental production and just leave it at that. Um, rather, what I want to suggest is that the directionality, the teleological directionality of the intellectual operation is not an orientation toward a product, but it's teleological in the sense of an imitation. So extramental natures have what can be described as an exemplar relationship to our knowing because of the way that they cause our intellectual forms, they set a standard that our knowing therefore is meant teleologically to imitate. And in that imitation, the directionality goes from us to them as a standard, right? So on this account, we should understand X is being known, X is being what is known as follows. X is what our intellect strives to live up to or imitates. So being the what, the direct object of a verb of knowing is to be the standard for imitation of the intellect. Okay, so the last thing that we would need to put in place then is to say a little bit more about what it means for something to imitate um, something else in Aquinas. Now, given the various criteria, which I won't go through that Aquinas lays out for being an image, and since he also holds that every agent makes its patient like itself, on his view, this is the broad metaphysical claim, every effect must be an image of its cause. But whatever is produced by some per se agent must imitate its effect, he says, insofar as it is effected by the agent. So what that means crucially is that for Aquinas, being an image of A, is more than having a likeness relation to A. Being an image further implies a dependence on and an ordering to A. A has something first and gives it to B, so B has this independence on A. Conversely, A is more than just a mover of B, it is an exemplar of B. An exemplar has something primarily, and the image has it only derivatively independently, so that the relationship is asymmetrical. So Aquinas says, quote, from the fact that one thing has a form by participation, it imitates that which has that form essentially. And then again, in another passage, he says, two things must be considered concerning what imitates. 
namely the relation of equality and likeness whose foundation is that unity in the respect of which they imitate, and furthermore, the order. For what is posterior made to the likeness of another is called an image, but that which is prior to whose likeness the other is made is called an exemplar." End quote. Furthermore, the being in the activity of an image, and here again, we have to be thinking about anything that proceeds from a person agent, is intrinsically oriented toward its exemplar. An image has within itself something that Aquinas says, quote, points to and expresses, designat et exprimit, the nature of its cause. The very being and activity of the effect is an expression of the cause, which refers back to the cause. There's nothing cognitive going on here, right? This is a description of a certain kind of dependence, such that the exemplar sets a standard for the effect to live up to. The underlying causal model here is the Neoplatonic notion of outflow and return. In proceeding from the cause, the effect turns back toward the cause, as Aquinas states in connection with creatures and God. Each and every creature returns to its principle insofar as it bears a likeness of its principle in its existence and its nature, which granted a certain perfection. So the key is to think of causation by an exemplar as the exemplar's expression of itself, namely its bringing forth of something that points back to it. Expression has a dual reciprocal dimension. On the outgoing side, the exemplar's production of an image is a self-expression. And therefore, on the inbound side, the image expresses the exemplar. So the pointing to amounts to. It comes into existence precisely as an expression of the exemplar and hence points to, imitates, expresses, or presents the exemplar just by being what it is. Aquinas says, quote, the effect tends into the likeness of its agent on account of the same reason that the agent assimilates its effect to itself, where the effect tends into the end into which the agent directs it, end quote. So for Aquinas, directionality is built into any image. And then we have to keep firmly in mind that image here, again, refers to any effect of any per se cause. This directionality has a teleological character. The perfection of an image, qua image, precisely consists in its pointing or imitating or expressing in this way. Quote, the perfection of an image is for it to represent its exemplar by likeness to it. For this indeed is an image constituted. Therefore, all things are for the sake of pursuing divine likeness, as though for the sake of a final end. End quote. So now what we see here is some sort of notion of directionality coupled with a teleological claim about imitating, which are part of Aquinas' basic theory of causation, per se causation. Okay. We now have everything in hand to be able to account for the directionality of human knowing in Aquinas in terms that are common to his metaphysics. Whereas, as one might have already realized, the actualized intellect intelligible the self-manifestation of catness as Sarah's actualized intellect when she is knowing cats is properly speaking an image of catness, not in some distinctively cognitive sense, but in the same sort of sense in which a cat baby is the image of its parents. This mind image or intellect image here satisfies all Aquinas' criteria for being an image, properly speaking, of extramental cat nature. 
First of all, it is causally dependent on the excremental cat nature. A real cat acts on um, Sarah's senses and ultimately acts on the intellect to bring about the effect of a catish instance of intellectual being in us. Second, this effect has a relation of likeness to the cause. And third, the likeness holds precisely in a manner that is relevant to the determinate species of the effect. So what we have here is a picture in which the world of beings, through the power of the agent intellect, which we haven't talked about, but again, I'm happy to talk about a little bit more in the Q&A if people want, is constantly making us intellectually in its own image. And just as most images have a lesser mode of being than their exemplars, so too our catish or crocodilian or spiderish intellects are less perfectly catish or crocodilian or spiderish than the living exemplars, where the ratio, properly speaking, is expressed in its natural being. So uh, cat being naturally occurs in the material mode. Um, as a result, the actualized human intellect is what one might call a mind image of extramentally existing natures. And here I want to emphasize that a mind image is not a mental image. The notion of a mental image presupposes a third thing, a subject, a viewer, a self, a mind, which the mental image puts into a relationship with extramental things. But on Aquinas' view, it is the actualized intellect itself that is the image. It itself is actually intelligible crocodile. There is no third thing besides the crocodilian mind image and the crocodile that caused it. I guess we switched from cats to crocodiles. Um, rather, the mind image is, as it were, an intellectual, intelligible icon of the nature that animates living crocodiles. Um, so what this means, let me just draw some brief uh, implications. What this means is that, first of all, the mind image has an essential orientation to the natures in cats and crocodiles, in the sense that the natures in cats and crocodiles serves as a teleological standard for the mind image to live up to. As a result, the mind image is measured by the nature in, in cats and crocodiles. And Aquinas says, each thing is measured by that upon which it depends. And this language of being measured by excremental natures will be familiar to anyone who knows Aquinas' writings on truth, where he repeatedly states that our abstracted knowledge is measured by excremental things. This measuring just tracks causal dependence. An intellect maker is the measure for the things it, produce, uh, it produces. So a human artisan, for instance, if I'm an architect, my house thought is the measure according to which the house has to live up to. But when the causal relationship is reversed and the cat is causing an instance of intellectual being in me, then the cat is now the measure for what it causes in me. And Aquinas says, quote, the truth consists in the adequation of intellect and thing, as was said above. But the intellect that is the cause of a thing is compared to it as rule and measure. And the reverse is true of the intellect that receives scientific knowledge from things. When a thing is a measure and a rule of an intellect, truth consists in the intellect's being adequated to it, as happens in us. So now we have a reason to ascribe to a crocodilian self-manifestation in us a certain intrinsic directionality toward 
excremental crocodiles in the sense that it expresses and is meant to live up to the nature that is found naturally occurring in crocodiles. So in that sense, we have a fundamental orientation toward excremental natures. And then secondly, I think this changes the way we might think about what knowing consists in for Aquinas. Knowing is therefore an active imitation. It's a kind of performance of imitating um, or expressing. And Aquinas seems to say something along these lines when he discusses creatures as images of God. He says that insofar as creatures are images of God, they operate, and by performing their own proper operations, doing a deer doing the deer thing, humans doing the human thing, each of these creatures is imitating the agency of their exemplar. And so similarly, I think we want to we want to construe the action of thinking as an act of performatively imitating or expressing the exemplar, which is the nature that brought that that is expressed in the mind image. So thinking about crocodiles is precisely the kind of crocodilian behavior that one could expect from a crocodilian mind image. Of course, intellectual intelligible crocodile cannot swim, grow, chase, prey on fish and hide in swamps. What it can do is think, and its thinking is precisely the way in which it actively imitates real crocodiles in the manner available to it. Okay. So now we have some way of making sense of Aquinas' claim that there is a what or an object for intellectual actions and that the what I know are natures existing in extramental things. These extramental things are what I know precisely in the sense of something to which I am teleologically ordered due to being an expression of it. What I know is reducible to what I imitate or what I express. So let's briefly take stock. At the beginning of this talk, I suggested that Aquinas adopts a metaphysical approach to knowing as the constitution in the human being of a certain kind of new being. And that this metaphysical approach integrates knowing into the broader conceptual framework that applies to beings in general. Instead of using a portfolio of specially psychological notions like mental representation, abstraction, concepts, intentional item, Aquinas reduces all of these notions to more widely applicable metaphysical notions, cause and effect, agents making their patients like themselves, the hylomorphic composition of matter and form, relations of likeness grounded in unity of form, teleological orientations of an effect to its cause, etc. The worry at the beginning of the paper was that such a metaphysical account would fall apart when it came time to explain intentionality, which does not seem at all to be a generally applicable metaphysical notion. I hope to have shown that Aquinas is up to the task of providing a uniquely, and hopefully uniquely interesting, metaphysical account of the conscious phenomena that underlie contemporary discussions of intentionality. What he gives us is a way of thinking about intentional presence as reducing to being an instance of a certain kind of being. To have catness intentionally present is just to be an instance of catness to have an instance of intellectual being that is cat determinate. On the other hand, the feeling of actively directing myself towards some object I'm thinking about reduces to the more broadly applicable teleological orientation of a certain kind of effect to its exemplar cause. Thinking is about something in the manner in which emotion is directed toward an end point, namely 
It is directed toward that which completes it teleologically or which sets the standard for its perfection. In short, Aquinas's account of intentionality is not an account of a sui generis relation or property had by certain entities like thoughts or words. Rather, it is account of the kind of life that the intellectual creature lives. To live intellectually is to actualize an innate potency of the human being to become all things. In an intellectual becoming that enables us to imitate with a kind of mental performance, the realities around us. But that is just what all beings do. Thank you. All right. So I suggest for the Q&A that um, people just put a asterisk in the chat. Uh, so send it to everyone. And, um, and then that way I'll be able to easily see who is first in raising their hand. Um, someone raised their hand right at the end, I think. So um, maybe, yeah. So that's how we'll do it. Just put an asterisk in the chat. We have uh, Don. Yes, uh, thank you for the talk. Um, uh, my question was, if, uh, if you could explain a little bit more how uh, the act potency distinction uh, relates to your uh, your understanding of the, intel uh, the intellectual process for Aquinas? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because what Aquinas says, <clears throat> um, so, so here's, let me, let me backtrack a minute. What we often do when we talk about intellect or sense in Aquinas is we talk about them as cognitive powers. Um, but actually Aquinas says that they're potentials. So they're, they're passive powers and a passive power is nothing but a potential. Um, so in the case of an intellect, it is a potential in the soul for a certain kind of being, namely intellectual being. So in the same way in which um, a round apple has the potential to be flat if it's squashed hard enough, or a cold water has the potential to be hot, um, those potentials are real features of certain substances for Aquinas. So a potential is not just sketching out a possibility, it's something real in a thing. Um, you can think of it as a kind of emptiness to be filled up by actuality. So I think this is, you know, a, a standard Aristotelian way of thinking about potency and actuality and Aquinas takes it on board. Um, and so what that means is that rather than thinking about cognitive powers in terms of faculties that, that are like little mental mechanisms to perform certain operations, we should be thinking of them rather as potentials that an animal or whether non-human or human animals have in various parts of themselves for acquiring a certain kind of being. Um, and in the case of, and what, what that makes much more interesting is a question that actually Aquinas spends a lot of time on and we can begin to understand why he spends so much time on it, which is what kind of features does a subject have to have? What, what ontological status does it have? What kind of thing does it have to be in order to have a certain cognitive potential? Um, so he thinks that body parts can have, like an eye can have a potential for visual being, but there's no bodily extended thing that can have a potential for intellectual being. And so the potential there is 
going to be a potential of the soul alone. That's basically the view. Is that is that what you're after? All right, uh, Brendan. Okay. Yeah, let me just. Okay. So my question sort of comes in how this um, this analysis of Aquinas or what Aquinas says works with maybe gradations or sort of imperfections in the process of, of knowing. So maybe the example that comes to mind is if I have if I have poor vision and things that I see at a distance are just a blur and I see a cat and do my best to know that cat and maybe I look away and I see a dog but I think it's the same being. It's blurry, it has four legs, it has generally the same form. I guess it'd have to be a small dog, but you know, any two similar animals, but I mistake them for the same thing. So at least consciously, I believe that I'm attempting to know or having this uh, intelligible form imitate two different things, but I think of them as one, as a mistake. Yes, um, so, so this is, I think a very important way of putting his theory of knowing firmly into his broader metaphysical picture, because for Aquinas, um, and this is a view again that he, that he takes from Aristotle, um, agents in assimilating their, in assimilating patients to themselves are limited by the capacity of the patient and their own power to act. So for instance, um, let's say that we go with the medieval view that fire has unlimited heating capacity, right? Uh, on that view, the limitations to how hot a patient can get are due to the material makeup of the patient itself. So no matter how much fire you apply, you can only get water to a certain temperature. But fire has, or wood has a much greater potential for heat, and that's why it can actually heat to the point of combusting. Um, but that limitation is on the side of the receiver. And so we've got a similar account in Aquinas for um, in, in the case of substances that surround us assimilating us cognitively to themselves. So in the case of if we just start with visual being, right, if, if your eye is jaundiced, right, and everything appears yellow to you, which is an example that he likes, um, then that fact about your eye is going to, as the receiver of the agency of the of, of a tree is going to limit the extent to which the tree the tree's color is able to assimilate it to you, assimilate you to itself, right? Um, and that limitation may even come out to the eye taking on something that bears almost no resemblance to the form in the agent. So this is actually uh, the kind of theory that Aquinas used to, to explain the existence of what he calls monsters, right? It's like something terrible has gone wrong in the process of generation such that the agent's activity has been sort of diverted in such a way that the result bears no resemblance to the agent. You have a two-headed cow or something that doesn't look like a cow at all, right? Um, and that's, that's something that happens in, that he, he wants to account for misfirings in sight but it's also something he's going to appeal to in connection with intellect. So he thinks that error, he draws this comparison sometimes, error is like the birth of a monster, is what he says. 
So it's actually, there's a something that's gone wrong in the causal process. And maybe it's that your eye is very blurry or the medium is very foggy. And so you mm -hmm. see this thing and you think it's a cat instead of a dog, right? And so what happens is that that object in exercising causality on you has only succeeded so far in assimilating you to itself. And it's done something, right? It might have assimilated you to the extent that it's changed you, given you an instance of, of intellectual experience of four-legged four -legged moving thing, right? But then the problem is that you additionally have to identify. So you have to perform an additional action, which is a kind of action judgment or, um, or endorsing what it is that you are identifying what it is that you um, have received. And there, Aquinas thinks, that's when you can actually make a mistake. You can't make a mistake up until that point when you say, that's a, that's a what was the example? It's a cat and it should have been a dog, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the agent had the effect on you that it had, right? And if we just left it at that, we would say that there's something really twisted about the, how the agency got manifested in you due to the medium and the receivers in between. Um, but there isn't falsehood, properly speaking, until you then misidentify in an additional step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And kind of the, so that definitely addresses part of my question. But the other is that, and this might not just apply to error, but just in the multiplicity of things we see, yeah. Is there a distinct form for each of them? And if, like, because if I see like a gray cat and a black cat, you know, on the one hand, we want them to be different forms because they're, they're different cats, they have different properties. But on the other hand, they're certainly related and we can get to know catness maybe to the same degree through both of them. Uh, right. Yeah, so that's just kind of the multiplicity of forms. If they're each being that are, man that are if, it, if there's intelligible being manifesting itself in our intellect or, or like as an expression of our intellect, uh, I'm just wondering how the multiplicity works and how the relation between similar things works there. Yeah. So it's already a case for Aquinas that this is a problem on the level of what he calls the estimative sense in animals or the cogitative power in human beings. Um, so there's a brain power in Aquinas and one of the internal senses that's responsible for, um, for pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And now we might think about pattern recognition in terms of you having an experience and then the experience is sort of come up before an internal eye and the internal eye is somehow able magically to detect similarities. And it sort of begins to arrange them into, into to, to notice a pattern and kick out ones that don't fit the pattern. Um, but the way Aquinas thinks about it is something a little bit more like, um, I mean, if we thought about, I don't want to go too far with the spatial analogy, but if we, if we thought about the, the, poten the potential here in terms of a wax that's being shaped, right? Something is going to have an effect over here, and that's going to have an effect over here. Uh, a different experience might have an effect over here. Um, but then the effects that are going to be more similar are going to be sort of closer together in where they're affecting. You could sort of use that analogy. So the impression is going to be deeper, right? And the things that line up, they'll, they'll start to fit into a groove that's being generated, let's say, in the soul. Use the impression example rather than the actualization, or impression analogy rather than an actualization kind of model. Um, they're going to create a deeper and deeper and deeper groove. 
which just means that they're going to fit each subsequent new impression that's in that neighborhood is going to fit more easily into the groove. I think mm -hmm. that so he thinks about the brain power is already being able to do that such that an animal can learn to respond in the same way to things that have the same sets of characteristics. And he thinks that that ability is actually the precondition in the human being. It's not until you've come to the, fact, the point of being able to do that for mm -hmm. a certain kind of thing on the imaginative level that mm -hmm. you're able then to, that, that the causation coming from the animal is able to penetrate further into your cognitive capacities to the intellectual level and affect your intellect. So you don't go directly from sort of basic sensory impression in the first time directly to intellect. There's a sort of catalyzing that happens on the level of the imagination until it's charged up in such a way as to become a suitable instrument to carry the causal influence of the animal that you're now experienced with into mm -hmm. the intellect. Um, and so by that point, you're going to be pretty subject to the way in which your experience was formed. So you are sort of going to be held hostage to the fact that you only noticed white swans, right? You never saw a black one. Mm -hmm. And so it might seem obvious to you when you abstract the essence of swanness, and then you start to reason about what is essential to swanness, you might take it for granted that, of course, whiteness is essential to swanness, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't know that, in fact, that's accidental. And so that has to be sorted out. And so for Aquinas, um, I think when you, when you first abstract the form of a thing, the form is going to have this causal link to the thing that you're trying to understand. So it's always going to be the form of swan. And the mistakes are going to happen when you attribute to swans, essentially, something that doesn't belong to them essentially, or you leave out something that you should put in and attribute to them essentially. But what's going to be in common, let's say, let's say that you're a swan, a swan theorist, right, and you know everything there is to know about swans and I know nothing, um, it's still going to be the case that assuming I have at least some experience of swans enough to be able to extract the, con the, the form in the first place. Um, is still going to be the case that both of those forms are aiming to live up to the same thing, which is swanness as it exists in naturally occurring swans. And swanness is going to be the criterion for judging that my instance of swan-ish intellectual being is far insufficient to the reality of swanness and that yours is much more sufficient yeah. Okay. Yeah, that helps a lot. Thank you. Uh, next question is from Derek. Yes. Um, it seems to me that your your understanding, and I and I want to uh, ask if I've understood this correctly, that determinacy seems to be the switching point between um, the two types of of uh, intentionality, both presence and. Uh, uh, direction, and I, number one, want to uh, check and see if I understood that correctly. Um, yeah, so it's going to be the, the sine qua non for Aquinas, for understanding Aquinas' theory of intentionality is that 
the determinacy to cat kind is something internal to this instance of intellectual experience due to the form that it has. Um, yes, and so without that, the whole rest of the account doesn't work because we all then we aren't able to without that we aren't able to fit it into the broader metaphysical picture, according to which agents make their patients have to the extent to which they're capable forms that bear the same ratio as the form of the agent. Got it. So the the question that I wanted to push from determinacy is also in a sense related to both uh, types of intentionality, which is if what is if the direction of my thought is not towards catness, but towards this cat or this God in particular, um, and also the presence in front of me is this cat or this God, if, if I you know, go, go both directions on this, yeah. how does Thomas, or how does uh, the conversation get us to uh, you know, the specific individual or the todeti or what can be pointed to. Yeah. Yeah. So Aquinas diverges from the strict application of the maxim that he, that he inherits, which is that intellect is of universals and senses of particulars. And he's probably one of the first people in the, in the 13th century to explicitly qualify that maxim. And so what he says is that, um, yeah, so what he says is that it's not that intellect is essentially of universals. The problem is actually in the, in the, the causal capacity that, and that a material substance has for acting on something immaterial like the human soul. And the problem is that it, in a way, the, the causal power of the cat to cause something of its own ratio runs out once it doesn't have any more bodily subject to act on. So it runs out with the, with the last internal sense, which is located in an organ of the brain. So in order to explain how the causal power is able to go any further than that, we have the intervention of the power that Aquinas gets from the agent intellect. And the agent intellect gives a kind of causal boost to the instrument that is carrying the causal power from the cat to the intellect, which is the, the imagination formed by, uh, by an imaginative form by phantasm. And, um, and so what you get as a result of that is that the, the formed imagination is not able to act on the intellect insofar as it's a body but only insofar as it carries a certain, as its form has a certain ratio. And, and so that's why in the into what, what results in the intellect is an instance of intellectual experience that has the ratio from the form in the imagination, but nothing else. And so as a result, the causal link only goes back to the cat in terms of the ratio of the cat's form. And that's what is being measured. That's what's serving as the measure for the intellect, right? And so Aquinas will say, intellect is of universals because of this quirk about our cause, the, the, the causal history, but not essentially. And what that means is that 
um, in order for us to have a kind of complete a uh, complete grasp of objects in the world around us, there has to be a kind of coordination of the intellect and the imagination where the imagination is preserves that causal relationship uh, to be an imitation of the, of the this. And the intellect gets the ratio, which is their in immaterial being and the two together give us a complete assimilation to the thing in its thisness and its whatness together. Yeah, um, but it but it's sort of interesting that he, he makes a fuss about this because what he's going to want to say is that um, in an angel, both of those the the assimilation happens all on the level of intellect to thisness and whatness. So the problem is not that intellect can't assimilate to thisness. It's just that because of the way that angels get their forms they don't have this causal problem. And so one and the same thing in its thisness and whatness can be the standard for the intellect's being, right? When an intellect can, so like angelic intellect can be measured by this cat, whereas our intellects can only be measured by catness of cats. Got it, okay, thank you. I put myself in the chat because I have lots of questions. I'll just ask one real quick. Um, so I was wondering, you, I think on your handout, I couldn't find it when I went back and looked at it, but on your handout, I, did you have the example of the builder, the form of the house and the builder's intellect yeah. and the form of the house in the house? Yeah. Um, does Aquinas subscribe to the idea that the form of the house in the intellect of the builder is um, more perfect than somehow than that in in the house? Yeah. Or is that? Yeah, good. So, so one of the things that I didn't talk about really was how Aquinas thinks about the relative, how, what kind of judgments he thinks we can make about the relative perfection of a ratio existing in one mode of being as opposed to another mode of being. And the general picture um, so if we back up a little bit historically and we look at somebody like Avicenna, Avicenna is going to treat the ratio for, for Avicenna, it's, so he talks about hoarseness as just hoarseness, right? That's, I think, what Aquinas is talking about when he talks about the ratio. And for Avicenna, hoarseness as just hoarseness can exist in one of two modes of being, and he treats it as neutral, right? It can exist in intellectual being where it is universal and immaterial, or it can exist in a material being where it is this horse extended in space and limited to particularity, right? Um, but in itself, horseness doesn't have any predisposition to one side or another. These are just the two ways in which it can be found. And if anything, ontologically speaking, the priority in Avicenna would be for intellect because what is more fundamental ontologically is the cosmic intellect, the dator formarum, the giver of forms. So all of these ratione, the, the essences, exist as determinations of intellect first and are then thereby, in, in a kind of order of causal dependence, received by matter um, to generate horses and cats. Um, and I think in Aquinas, you have kind of a different picture. So he thinks that these rationales do have a kind of predisposition 
to a certain mode of being where they naturally occur. So horse, it's not, horseness is not neutral in, in Aquinas to existing intellectually or, or materially. It defaults to existing materially because horses are the things that naturally occur, right? And then there has to be some kind of derivation or some additional causal activity that has to happen in order for horseness to take on an intellectual being, right? Um, so in that respect, Aquinas wants to say that horseness exists more perfectly as this horse than it does as my thought horseness, the being of my intellect. Um, but at the same time, there's another way we can consider perfection, and that's in terms of the intrinsic great grade that something occupies as a kind of being in the scale of beings. And there Aquinas says, well, intellectual being is a more perfect kind of being than material being because material being is extended, it's corruptible, it's limited to just one. Um, whereas immaterial or intellectual being is self-transparent, it's thinking, so it's already vital, um, it's imperishable. There's all sorts of things about it that indicate that it's a more perfect mode of being. So he'll say that <laughs> horseness exists more perfectly in this horse, but in a more perfect mode of being in my thought. And that's exactly the same thing that the same distinction that he invokes when he's trying to work out the sense to which we whether we should say that in the divine ideas that horseness exists more perfectly in the divine ideas or in horses. He's a good answer Aristotelian on this. He says, horseness exists more perfectly in horses, right? But of course, because the divine ideas have a divine mode of being, it exists in a more perfect mode of being in God, right? So, you know, it's a typical Aquinas, you parse it carefully, you can have both things at the same time, if you want. So the, the uh, real quick follow-up. So the, the mode of being in God is more perfect, but the, um, what's the terminology for saying it's more perfect? In what way is it more perfect in the horse? Because it's its I, natural, natural mode of being or something? Yeah, I think it's, it's the, it's, it's the, the mode of being that horseness is teleologically ordered to. So, and, and I think he can, he thinks you can tell this by when you go and define horse, because when you define what a horse is, when you define horseness, right? The things that you say about horseness include flesh and blood, ability to run, the neighing and all of that stuff. And he thinks, well, these are all features that horseness can only have in its material mode of being. So you're basically saying, he, he thinks that's telling you that horseness is supposed to exist in a material mode of being. I see, okay, that's super helpful, thanks. Well, if, uh, if there are no further questions, then um, since the talk officially ends at eight, ended rather at 8.30, um, perhaps we should let uh, Professor Corey uh, have the rest of her evening. So um, let's thank her. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. This was a really rich talk. Thank you very much for having me. And um, yeah, have a great evening. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. Take, take care, everyone.